Our scripture this morning is from Acts 14, verses 8 to 28. In Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet and had never walked, for he had been crippled from birth. He listened to Paul as he was speaking, and Paul, looking at him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said in a loud voice, stand up on your feet. And the man sprang up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they stood, they, they shouted in the Laconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, and he and the crowds wanted to offer sacrifice. When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We are mortals just like you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these worthless things to the living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to follow their own ways, yet he has not let himself without, left himself without a witness in doing good, giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, and filling you with food and your hearts with joy. Even with these words, though, they scarcely restrained the crowds from offering sacrifices to them. After they had proclaimed the good news to the city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, then on to Iconium and Antioch. There they strengthened the souls of the disciples and encouraged them to continue in their faith, in the faith, saying, it is through many persecutions that we must enter the kingdom of God. And after they had appointed elders for them in each church, with prayer and fasting, they entrusted them to the Lord in whom they had come to believe. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. When they had spoken the word of Perga, in Perga, they went to Italia. From there they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had completed. When they arrived, they called the church together and related all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith for the Gentiles. And they stayed there with the disciples for some time. So today we finish this uh, series that we've been working with on stories of the gospel. We called it Building Our Lives. And uh, last week we looked at a story of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. And Jesus fasting, remember he's been driven into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. It was a long, long fast. And through these different stories, Old Testament and New, uh, we've been thinking of spiritually building our lives, and we'll continue doing that as we look at the season of Lent and beginning next week. And today we end with uh, an example from the book of Acts with the apostles, both Paul and Barnabas, and this is their first missionary journey. A number of years ago I went with some students um, to Turkey, and we traveled this area, and we followed the footsteps of uh, St. Paul, so that was quite interesting. So a number of these places we were actually at. But if we follow that from 
there. That's Antioch. Antioch was the first place where Christians were called Christians. So they were called Christians in Antioch, which meant followers of Christ, just obviously associated with Christos, Christ um, in the Greek. So remember, this is all Greek-speaking world. So they follow from uh, Antioch, and then they take a sail all the way through Cyprus and up to this area, um, through Galatia, basically, which is the book of Galatians. But they visit all of these towns, up north, over to Derby, and then they wake, make their way back, follow the same thing, and go all the way back. It starts in Acts 13 and 14. So that, that whole missionary journey it takes place over two chapters. And when you read it, it sounds like they're just zooming from place to place. Well, that's not the way it worked. They, in fact, in our text that was just read today, we're told that they stayed for a long time in those cities of Lystra and Iconium. So this trip probably took a couple of years. So it's, it's a good bit of time. So we know, for example, Paul later in Ephesus spends two whole years in Ephesus teaching to the people uh, in that area of, of Asia Minor. And it's the same here. So when we read it, it sounds like zip, 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 they're going all over the place, but it's condensed. The whole passage is condensed. They are traveling together, both Paul and Barnabas, and they're speaking, they're preaching, they're teaching, and it goes over these uh, two years. So it's, it's a little bit slower than, it, than we read um, in Acts chapter 14. So we see it, and we notice that there is a beginning, and their ministry is a connection of signs and wonders. And so we see that in verse 3. We'll just read it. So they remain for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who testified, note, to the word of his grace. So Luke uses that phrase to sum up the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. They spoke boldly for the Lord, who testified to the word of his grace, by granting signs and wonders to be done through him. The logo that we use in our church is receiving grace, giving grace. We receive grace, and we want to pass it on. And that's, that's, you know, that's a big statement, and it's harder to do uh, than we might think. And, of course, without the work of the Lord in our lives, we're not going to do it anyway. But that's a summary of what they are speaking of, the word of his grace so, oh, how he loves us, all the songs that we've been singing, how God is good to us, this is a reflection of God's grace. And that's what we're trying to communicate to folks as we go along. And that's what Paul and Barnabas are doing. So they're speaking and teaching, and even miracles are being performed through them by the work of the Spirit and making an impression on this Greek audience, on this Greek world. And again, as we slow the whole thing down, some are saying yes and others are saying no. And so that is why Paul prays that the folk will open the eyes of my heart. That's why he sang that song. That that's what grace is about. So we can see this work. Some receive, some don't. Paul prays in Ephesus that people's eyes, the eyes of their heart, 
will be open. It's a metaphor for faith, for response. The crippled man walks. Remember, we have a story of Peter working a miracle, and the crippled man walks. In this story, it happens not by Paul and Barnabas, obviously, but they are the instruments that make that happen. So it's all happening in a Greek world. And so they're all excited after this man is healed. Obviously, they would be. And they call Barnabas Zeus, the Greek world. He is the king of all kings. He's the main god. That's Zeus. And they call Paul Hermes because Hermes was a messenger of the gods. He was a spokesperson of the gods. Paul was doing most of the speaking, so that's why they named them these Greek gods. And, of course, they're going to rush out. We'll see that in a minute. And say, hey, hey, we're not gods. We're just folk. But this is the way the audience is speaking to them. So it's a Greek world. It's not a Jewish world. They're not going and speaking to the Jewish community. This is not Israel. This is a Greek world. So this is the context of this statement and this story in the book of Acts. We're going to see that the people are, they're going to name them gods, right? And so they respond. Friends, this is them going out. Friends, why are you doing this? Why are you going to make sacrifices to us? They're going to kill some oxen and make sacrifices to Zeus and to Hermes. Friends, why are you doing this? We are mortals just like you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. So they start speaking to this Greek audience, and it's about good news. That's why we sang that song, good to me, you are good to me, you are good to me. Because that's what Paul is saying here. You know, in this, in this sermon that he gives, there is no note about Christ as the Messiah. They back up from that story, and they speak about God as creator and sustainer. He is the good God that we can all see. Go out at night, see the stars, see the seasons moving back and forth. This is all a sign of God's goodness. And we're to turn from worthless things, and in Paul's mind, worthless things are the idols. There are these idols to Zeus and to Hermes and to other. The Greek um, panoply of gods, 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 all kinds of gods. If you go to Athens today, the city of Athens, and do a tour around the inner city, you'll see that Mars Hill, there are statues and temples to all the gods. They're all there. There's dozens of them, dozens of temples that have been restored in honor of the gods. Turn from these worthless things to the living God. That's their sermon. So we might say, well, what are worthless things for us? What would Paul say for us, speaking in our culture? What are the things that we spend all of our time focusing on? I've listed some. Could be career, could be money, could be lust, could be addictions. All of these things that we focus on turn from worthless things to the God who is the creator of all. So we might just pause in that moment and think about our own lives. What do we spend all of our time thinking about, focusing on? Is it a helpful thing? Is it, is it or pick a deal, a small sin, as the word suggests? 
turn to the living God, the God who is creator, the God who is provider, the God who is sustainer. You read those verses, 15 through 17. That's who God is. He's the God who created the world. He's the God who provides the seasons, all the seasons. We were out of town yesterday and coming back from the north, and all the all these fields are covered by snow. But underneath that snow, action's happening. And as the spring comes along, it'll burst forth. That's God's goodness. And Paul is saying we need to see that and give him praise. He's the creator. And I love the line because he says, all these living things, all the things that fill the sea. Well, as you know, scuba diving, we see lots of things that are in the sea. Rob and I just came back from Tobago. What did we see? You want to hear some of the things we saw? Sure you do, let me tell you. Well, we saw a reef shark just swimming around. We saw nurse sharks trying to sleep, and we were kind of bugging them, and they just sleeping under a ledge. We saw several small seahorses. You ever see a seahorse? Really pretty, about this big. What did we see? We saw lots of schools of fish. We saw, you know, one of the big things we saw, we saw a manta ray. Manta ray, woo, they are hard to see. That was amazing. That might have been the highlight, seeing the manta ray. Two big wings, long tail at the end, which you have to watch out for. But all these critters, and that's what Paul is saying. God is the creator who filled the earth and filled the seas all with his blessing. Can we see God in that? Can we see God's goodness? Note, it's good news, right? Jesus is good news. Jesus is not bad news. Sometimes as Christians, we end up acting in a way that it sounds like bad news. But the work is actually good news. Jesus is about good news. God's blessings. So Steve read earlier from Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget all his benefits. And then note, who satisfies you with good as long as you live, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. So the Psalms, right, they date six, seven, eight hundred years before, or longer. David is a thousand years before Christ. And the Psalms are the hymn book of the Jewish people, and they're praising God for his goodness, God's goodness. And so to this Greek audience, who know nothing about the gospel, Paul and Barnabas back right up, and they start speaking about God as creator, provider, sustainer, because he says, you know these things. We all can see God through these things. That's the argument that Paul uses. Reaching out to this whole new world. Note to the Gentiles, and by the way, we're Gentiles. So we are on the receiving end, ultimately, of this story that was given by Paul and Barnabas. But there is resistance. Some people say yes, and other people say no. Again, this takes time for this story to unfold. But ultimately, they drag Paul outside town. They stone him. They leave him for dead. This is strong resistance. They're not happy because they've been incited by other people. You can see some of the details there. And Paul says, hey, suffering and persecution, that's part of the journey. 
He says, it is through many persecutions that we must enter the kingdom of God. Or it is through many sufferings that we must enter the kingdom of God. Things just don't go always the way we want. Things are good, and things are challenging. We're healthy, and then we're sick. This is part of the story of life. Ron, who's been with us for the last seven or eight years, I'm not sure exactly, being a blessing in our midst, you're healthy, and then you get sick. And ultimately, death awaits for all of us. That is part of the rhythm of life. It is there. That's part of our experience. Ultimately, it's not inconsistent with the gospel. We are not promised that things will always go well. If we're out and about, if you're in certain parts of the world, the coronavirus, that's real out there. That could happen to anybody. That could happen to us. If we're in the midst of that, sure. But we look to God who is there for us. So ultimately, the issue is, will we keep trusting? Will we keep saying yes to God? Will we persevere? Will we win one, will one thing, which is, we noted last week, the words of Kierkegaard. Keep willing one thing. Keep saying yes. Keep persevering. Even when there are challenges, even when we lose work, even when we have loss of health, when there are challenges in the family, will we keep looking to God or do we turn it all off and say, hey, where are you? Where are you, God? A call to keep trusting and leaning and depending on God. This is all of us going on in this story. And it leads us to the final point and the point that's where connects with our series is that ultimately we are partners with God. And after they had appointed elders for them in each church, with prayer and fasting, they entrusted them to the Lord and whom they had come to believe. So after they make the first part of their journey, they turn around, Paul and Barnabas, and they revisit all the places where they've been. They go back and they visit these small little churches, little congregations, no buildings, nothing like this. People meeting out by the river outside of town oftentimes, maybe meeting in somebody's house. They had house churches, just small gatherings. And Paul and Barnabas go back and they talk to them and they say, okay, how's it going? And then through prayer and fasting, they wait and depend and try to choose some individuals who will become leaders within those communities. And note, they do it, prayer and fasting. There's always that connection with prayer and fasting. It's interesting, when I started this series um, a few, well, what, six or seven weeks ago, Ron sent me a note the next week. And he sent me a note about this fasting issue. He wondered how it worked. He wondered how prayer works. How is it strengthened if I don't eat a bit of food? That was his comment. That's a real question. And so we engage back and forth on how prayer and fasting connect. And uh, it, it, it obviously was something that kind of puzzled him. But prayer and fasting, it's not a miracle. It's not miraculous. Nothing happens that way with fasting. But it seems to be something that helps us center helps us here, at least that's the opportunity. So it is a spiritual discipline that maybe, maybe it would benefit us more. So we had this little engagement in terms of how prayer and fasting work. 
So they gather, they pray, they fast, and ultimately they choose some folks, and those folks are now going to lead those small communities of faith, and they're entrusted to the Lord. So you can imagine, Paul and Barnabas done all that work, and then they finally hop on a boat and they go all the way back to Antioch, and then they tell the church, the church that were the sending church, hey, this is how it went. Later on, they have a second journey, Paul. Later on, there's a third journey. So for several years, they're traveling different parts of Asia Minor, doing essentially this sort of thing. And so in terms of building our lives, what are the disciplines that we use? What are we choosing? How are we being intentional in terms of moving forward? That's one question we can look at. We also note that when they return to Antioch the second time, they make the statement that God had opened a door of faith for the Gentiles. Up to this point, the church is essentially Jewish. The church is born out of the people of Israel in Jerusalem. And then with all the persecutions, the Christians, the Jewish people, start dispersing. It's called the diaspora. And they spread out all through Asia Minor, all through Turkey. And then they start telling the story. And then the church becomes more and more Greek, non-Jewish. Paul goes back and says, hey, a good thing's happened. God has opened a door for the Gentile community. God has opened a door for people who are not Jewish, who are not speaking Hebrew, Aramaic. And guess what? They are coming to faith. This is a big, exciting time in the history of the church. And so the point is, is that God opens and he closes doors. He opens doors, closes doors. Now we can hear that and we can say, well, I don't see that, or God is too distant, he's not interested in my life, whatever, whatever. The scripture says that God opens and he closes doors. Now we have to discern when that's the case. Nobody can tell you. I'm not going to come to you and say, hey, God's opened a door for you as such. You have to discern that. You have to hear it. You have to sit with the question, how does God open doors for you personally? How does he open doors for us as a church? I believe, and many of us do, that God has opened a door for this property next door. And we've been sitting on this one for a long time. But God has opened the door. Times we wonder, will the door be open or will it be shut finally? God has opened the door. But note, we have to go through the door. Jesus doesn't push you through the door. You know what I mean? The door doesn't open, then he gives you a boot in the rear end and says, like, get through it. It doesn't work that way. You have to discern it. I have to discern it. If he opens the door, you still have to go through it. I still have to go through it. That's part of the discerning process. I might get afraid. I might be uh, scared of going through I might think, oh, I don't know if I want to go through that because I'm not sure where it's going to go. Sometimes people wonder about that, about faith. I don't know if I want to do that. If I do that, then I'll be different from my friends. I don't want to be different from my friends. I want to be the same as my friends. Will I make that journey? You've got to always remember that what God wants in your life is goodness. He's only going to bless, meaning it's ultimately for goodness, not for badness but for goodness. So will you open the door? I mean, will you go through that door that God has opened? That's the question for us. Open the eyes of my heart. May I go through? 
Ultimately, it's about being partners and participants with God. You know, during the Reformation period, this was a real belief by Christians in that age. 1500s, 1600s. It was a Reformation theology. And it was that each of us has a vocation. The priesthood of believers, that's one of their language terms. We are all priests. If you're a Christian, you have a vocation. You might be a cobbler, the example is given. Your work may be fixing shoes. There's a little guy up in the plaza not far from where you live, and he has literally a small little booth, little, little booth, and you can go in there and get your shoes fixed, your purses fixed, and you watch him, and he's just like, he's got like 15 feet. That's it, fixing things. You can be a cobbler, but at, beneath that, we have a vocation. That's the idea that the Reformation teachers were using. We all have a vocation. We all have a calling. Will we find that calling? Will we try to discern that calling? So you can be a teacher. Teachers are out on the front line. They've been walking. Beneath that, that's a great opportunity to have a calling, to minister, to be a light, right? To be a light, to be a good teacher, to reveal something to reveal kindness, to reveal a smile. You can be working on Day Street, the same thing. Will you be a source of light or trip people up? For all of us, we have that. And that's what this text is really about. So do we find ourselves in lesser things or do we find our identity, really our identity, in Christ? The Reformation teachers are saying, please find your identity in Christ, because that's what the world needs. Not just a few preachers or priests up front. We all have our calling to find our identity in that reality, to be participants. And so we have some exciting times, we hope, in front of us over the next few years. But, you know, the real exciting thing is not just the building, right? The exciting thing is the people. The church is always the people. We who fill this building, we who will fill another building, we are called to be light. And that's where the, C.S. Lewis would say, the magic begins. The good magic begins as we find our identity in Jesus and serve him and walk with him, doing our bit in his name. Amen.